please to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8. The book of 1 Samuel chapter 8. This year being a year of politics and elections, certainly I think all of us are definitely aware that it seems uh, the mental attitude of so many people in America is an attitude of change. Now whether change is good or bad will yet be determined. I think some, I, I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, you know, uh, even here in our elections in the county, when I voted, I, when I saw automatically, when I saw an incumbent's name, I just didn't vote for the incumbent. In other words, there wasn't anything necessarily wrong with the incumbent. It was just an attitude of saying, hey, I'm tired of what's going on and I want to change. Well, a change may be good, a change may be bad. But here in this year of election, a lot of people are thinking about a change. Israel, in this book of 1 Samuel chapter 8, also begun to think about a change. And I want to say, by way of a preface to my message this morning, I'm not advocating a change or I'm not advocating not a change. I'm not entering into the political arena. But I do want you with the thought of the, and the background of our minds as we look at this chapter to see where Israel desired a change of government. In their case, it was not a good change at all. Beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we read beginning at verse number 1, and these words are found to say, And it came to pass when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, which is another word for money, and took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. From Abraham to Zedekiah, Israel's history you'll find falls into four distinct periods each of those periods lasting about 400 years, give or take a few years. The first of those periods you'll find existed from the time of Abram's birth unto the death of Joseph. The government at that particular time might be well categorized or entitled the family period. In other words, the government issued forth from the family circle, primarily the father heading the family and as well governing the family. 
The second period that lasted about 400 years came, uh, began uh, around the time of the death of Joseph to the exodus of Israel from the country and the land of Egypt. That very period of time of government was known as the tribal period. It was a time when the government was centered in the heads of, of, of the tribes. Realizing and remembering there were 12 tribes in Israel, there were 12 basic centers of government in that tribal period. And then the third of the periods of government in Israel's history was from the time of the Exodus to the first king who was, uh, who was enthroned by the name of Saul, having been the first king. Now, that period, they say, lasted not quite 400 years, about 350 years. It was known as the theocratic period. Now, that's an awful-sounding word, but it simply means it was a period when God was the king over Israel, not visible, but invisible. And thus, he ruled through men who were known as judges. There was indeed, uh, there is indeed in the Bible, a book with that very title, the book of Judges. So the judges were appointed and called of God and they were basically the rulers in the period that is known as the theocratic period. One other period, and I'll not drag this out any farther. And that is from the time of Saul to the time of Zedekiah. That period, again lasting approximately 400 years, is known as the period of monarchy. That is, the period when there was a king on the throne. So the book of 1 Samuel that we're in this morning records for us the change of the form of government from a theocratic form of government to a monarchy form and type of government. The two words are very interesting. The word theocratic coming from the word theos, meaning God, and the word mono, mana, or mon, really finds its origin in an old Scottish word. And the word pronounced by the Scottish mon simply is their word for man. There is also uh, an island known as the Island of Man, which is known as Mona. Mona, the same, pre, the same prefix. So what you have in a monarchy is this. It is the rule of man over man. In a theocracy, you have God in the place of kingship and ruling over his people. So what we have here in 1 Samuel is the historical record in the Bible of the change from the rule of God over to the rule of man. Now, Israel made a very sad choice, and you'll find how very sad that choice was if you'll take time to read this entire book of First Samuel. But Israel is not the only people who has ever made a foolish choice. Let me ask you a question or so. Have you ever really made a foolish choice in life simply based upon what others do? Have you ever made a choice just on the basis of saying, well, everybody else is doing this and this is the way they do it, so this is going to be my choice? Let me ask you another question, and that is this. Have you ever taken a path in life knowing, knowing full well 
that the result could be very painful and even possibly life-threatening. Have you ever made a choice knowing that? Israel did, though we did not read beyond verse 7, beginning down around verse number 10 and following there, you'll find where Samuel, the man of God, under the instruction of God, tells Israel the very result of what is going to come because they've made such a foolish choice based on what they have seen and observed others do. Let me ask you yet another question. Have you at some time in your life chosen the good in lieu of the best? Have you made a choice in just taking, as we sometimes say, the second best or the good and you've let the best slip by? Indeed, all of life is made up of choices. And we have choices that we face every day in our life. And yet the wise person is that person who weighs his choices in the scale of the word of God. He weighs it by the will of God as revealed in the word of God. Now to fail to do that, my friend, listen, means that you rob yourself You cheat yourself out of that that God would give you of his very best. You rob yourself of what God wants to give you in your life. So before you make any kind of choice, be it a choice in a political year or be it a choice in your personal life or family life or whatever, weigh that choice in the balanced scale of the word of God. And yet I wonder, Is it sometimes that we adults think that the only people who are bothered with peer pressure are the young folks? I want to tell you whether you want to admit it or not, every one of us have made choices based on the responses of those of our peers, the approval or the opinions of those whom we cherish and who are in our little circle of friends. Now with those questions in mind and with that background in mind, there are at least six matters that arise from this chapter, chapter 8 of the book of 1 Samuel that I'd like to share with you. Now I'd like to share all six of them with you, but as is my custom, I'll not give all of them to you. I'll just deal with about a couple of them or three and uh, I want you to be back tonight and we'll consider the remainder of this chapter. First of all, Jot this down in the margin of Bible or in your memory. Notice, if you will, first, God's plan for Israel. God's plan for Israel. The second thing you'll notice in this chapter is Israel's problem. The problem Israel had with God's plan. The third thing you'll notice with me this morning is God's permission. For the Lord granted permission to Israel in their choice, though he had warned them of the negative and the terrible result that would come if they followed through with their choice. I'll not give you the other three because I'll not be able to deal with them and it just take up your time. Let's look at these three things. First of all, God's plan for Israel. Every man needs an authority over his life. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. Man is so constituted. In fact, all of creation is so constituted that it demands an authority. If you please, a king. From the smallest atom 
to the vastness of the universe around you, the Creator has portrayed the necessity for an authority or, again, for a king. The Adam must have a central authority, which is the very center of it. Man must have an authority over him or his society becomes an anarchy. Again, man's body must have an authority. There must be a controlling factor of your body or you're going to become a spectacle for sure. From the head of this body and within that cranium is the brain that controls everything, the functioning, the motion, the movement, everything of your human body. And so God has even designed in this body of ours the very picture and the portrayal of the necessity of a central control. Even so, not only in man and his body, but in the family circle. God knew when he established the family that there was the necessity for a central authority. And of course, we believe as Bible believers that, the, that God gave to the husband the place of central authority. He gave him that position of leadership. Yes, the wife as one with him over the children is in a place of central authority and leadership. But the family disintegrates when there is the lack of that proper place of authority given to those whom God has appointed. Not only the family, but the church as well. God has appointed that the pastor should be the central authority in the church. No, he's not a dictator. He's not a tyrant. And yet, if the complaint is with anybody, complain to God. I didn't set up the church and I didn't write the Bible. But the whole story is God has appointed, and I don't care if the fellow's name is Burl, Smith, Jones, or who'd have thought it. The fact is, God says, there has to be a position of central authority. There has to be that place of decision-making, final finality, or the church itself becomes sick and disintegrates. The nation itself, we need a leader. So what I'm trying to say is this, God has in mind and in the plan for Israel, he indeed had included in his plan a king for Israel. However, at the moment, God reveals what, uh, I've forgotten the fellow's name there has these basic youth seminars. What's his name? Gothard, Bill Gothard. Talks about a chain of command. You'll see a chain of command in relation to Israel. And that chain of command is simply God. Underneath God are the judges. And underneath the judges are the people of Israel. So God has so established at the present time for Israel to be under the authority, under the rulership, under the kingship, if you please, of the judges. Though the Lord's ultimate plan for Israel was that a king would sit on the throne. Included then for Israel was God's plan for a king, ultimately. But he reveals to us in Isaiah 32 and verse 1 that that king whom God should choose would be a king who would reign in righteousness. Saul did not reign in righteousness. Often his reign was a reign of unrighteousness. His was a reign of terror. His was a reign of jealousy. 
His was a reign of viciousness and vindictiveness. But God's choice for Israel was that when a king should come, he would sit on the throne and he would rule in righteousness. However, that time had not come for Israel. Now, the problem is this. Often we want to get ahead of God's timing. When we do, we always invite disaster. The problem most of us is this. We're not willing to wait for God in his time to do what he deems necessary to be done. Can you imagine a wife or a man cooking, making a cake and he gets all that nice dough mixed up and before he puts it in the oven, he says to himself, I'll just put the icing on the cake. Well, I'm afraid the icing wouldn't stay on top of the cake if you put it on there before the cake is baked. Again, can you imagine a fella by, uh, uh, who's an automobile maker, a car maker, can you imagine a man with an automobile saying, I know what I'll do before I get the chassis and before I have the motor and all of that stuff, I'll just put the body down and that'll be sufficient. Brother Lockridge works for Ford Motor Company back here, and I guarantee you they'd fire you, Brother Lockridge, if you just put a body down without a motor and a chassis under it. And yet that's what we do often in life. We want to get ahead of God's time schedule. We want to say, God, I've got to have this, and I've got to have it right now. I'm not willing to wait for you. I'm not willing for you to give the green light. I want it now. And so Israel was unwilling to walk underneath the authority of the invisible king while they now were under as well the visible judges. What the Lord endeavored to do to Israel now, though God was unseen, his representatives were there. What God wanted Israel to learn that's so essential for us to learn, and that is this life is to be a life of faith Having, not having seen him, yet we love him. We see him not, but we worship him. We know he is there. There are so many evidences of him and of his power. And yet God was saying, Israel, I want you to learn to walk by faith. I want you to walk by faith. Yet when the Lord eventually sends the king who, reigned, who would reign in righteousness. You remember what Israel did? They said, we will not have this man rule over us. When he came to his own, his own received him not. Oh no, they were not willing to wait for that. They wanted to have their own king. And thus they invited disaster and invited trouble. So the judges indeed would, would appear when there was a national crisis. And then often they'd go off the scene, heard from very little, if any at all, the enemy would then begin to come or moral decay would occur and uh, the Lord would, by his own grace and by his own uh, uh, mercy, would send and raise up another judge. But you see, Israel wanted someone they could see always. They were not willing to say, Lord, we believe you and we know just as you have done in the past, you will supply us what we need at that given moment in time. And always the Lord did so, even under the rule of the judges. He always sent the judge when there was the need for one. 
But Israel failed to comply by lack of patience with the will of God and the plan of God for them. Secondly, notice, if you will, Israel's real problem. Now, in, think, in their own thinking, there were at least four reasons why they felt they needed a visible king. Four reasons. Look at them and you'll find them in the scripture. First of all, in verse 2 and 3, they said, I'll tell you why we need a king. We don't need any more of these judges. Because Samuel, you have two boys that you appointed judge. They're down in Beersheba and they are corrupt. They do not walk in your ways. Therefore, because of the corruption of two sons, we want a change in our form of government. That's like a fellow saying, hey, let's get rid of the whole army because that redneck over here can't keep in step with the rest of the fellow. Let's get rid of the whole squad because we got one fella that's gone wrong. He don't know how to do anything. Let's chunk all of the mechanics in the world because one mechanic doesn't know how to repair an automobile. That's the mentality of these people. And they're saying, now, hey, Samuel, you got two boys and they, listen, their heart is set on nothing but money. Not only that, but they're taking bribes and they are perverting judgment. They're not making judgment, a, 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 a righteous judgment. It is rather the fellow who can hand them the most money, you know. If you give me enough money, then I'll, I'll make a judgment in your favor. Now, certainly these young men were wrong and sinful, and it brought God's disfavor. But oh, for a man to forsake God and God's plan just because one or two fellows have dropped the ball and fouled up and corrupted their life is foolishness. And yet in our day, I've met people, I've been in churches where the pastor's life is fouled up morally. Where a preacher, a television preacher's life is fouled up morally. And there are people who will make the childish, foolish decision and say, well, I'll just chunk it all. I mean, you know, here's this fellow here. You know what that is? That's a feeble excuse for a man not to serve or submit himself to God. We look at others. Oh, my friend, listen, they're going, I, I don't know, have you ever known of any quack doctors? But when I get sick, buddy, I go to a doctor. Have you ever heard of bad or spoiled meat in the market? Have you quit buying meat because there's one bad pork chop somewhere? The whole story is this. That's the attitude many times in life. Because one thing has gone wrong, we want to chunk the whole ship. We got a hole. We got a leak in the ship. So let's sink her. Why not try to stomp the hole? What is that stuff Steve is putting on the roof? Slap mammy or something? I don't know what that was. Got a hole? Stomp it up. But yet again, Israel said, hey, you got two corrupt boys and I'll guarantee you, we, we don't want any more of this. We have been disillusioned. We have been discouraged. And therefore, we're going to forget God's plan for us. Notice the second reason. Verse number five says, read it. Last part of the verse. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Look at verse 20. That we may all that we also may be like all the nations. You know why they wanted to change? 
They were changing to conform themselves to the heathen pagan nations around them. How typical of men and women today in the church. Not realizing that the strength of the Christian, the strength of the church, and the beauty of the Christian, the beauty of the church is his distinct difference. Oh, that there would be a difference. That there would be a separation on the part of the Christian. Today, the tragedy is, you can look out here in the world, you can hardly tell a saint from a sinner. They go to the same places. They undress like the same crowd in the world. They go to the same nightclubs. They drink the same booze. They talk the same language. Oh, listen, how there needs to be a difference. If we are a professed child of God, there ought to be a distinction in our life. And yet the desire to conform to those around them calls them to say, we're going to change our form of government. We don't need these judges. We want to, we want to be like that. And you know that pressure's on in the Christian life today? We want to conform to the world. Hollywood sets a standard and everybody tries to keep up with it. Some TV personality sets a standard and we want to keep up with it. God help us to let the Bible be our standard. The Word of God be our standard. What need have we to keep up with the world? Listen, I don't want to keep up the world. Uh, up with the world. The world's headed for hell. I don't want to keep up with the world. I want to keep up with a different crowd. And yet the story is, that's what these were saying. We want to be like these others. Oh, they look so alluring. Everything looks so good. And you know, you ever notice the liquor advertisements? Some beautiful lady in a silken gown, beautiful red rose pinned in her hair. She holds a sparkling goblet in her hand. And the world is saying through that kind of advertisement, boy, this is the way to go. And many a fellow looks at that and say, you know, boy, they just look so happy. You ought to see the old hag when she's drunk. You ought to see her when she's wallowing in the gutter in her own vomit. You ought to see her when she loses all respect for herself. You ought to see that side of the picture, but the world won't show you that. All they show is the glittering side and, 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 the, and the uncommitted Christian looks at that and says, oh, I want to be like that. I want to be like the world. And yet God's saying, I don't want you like the world. I want you like Jesus. I want you to be like him. That's the need of the hour. Not only that, but look, if you will, at verse number 20, you'll find that another reason that presented this problem to Israel was they seemingly said, we need us a real military commander. Look at verse 20. The 20th verse says, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battle. You know what I thought, Charlie, when I read that? Remind me of so many Americans today. Let's let the government do it. You know, the government will pay for that. Do you know who the government is? They're, listen, they're paying for what you're getting out of your tax money. And yet people think they're getting a free handout. You ain't getting nothing handed out. You're just paying for it in the long run. And yet Israel said, hey, we want somebody to do our fighting for us. 
We're going to stay at home. Let the king take care of all that. We're tired of having to come out here, these fellows judging like Samson and, and getting all these guys coming in here and, 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 and mustering us and uh, getting us together. Man, we want a king that'll judge us and tell us what's right and wrong. We don't want to have to make those decisions. Kind of like Pilate. When Jesus stood before him, Pilate looked out of the crowd and said, what shall I do with Jesus? Why don't you make up your own mind, Pilate? Why don't you make the decision? Why let somebody, and yet many a person is just like Pilate here today. You're letting somebody else make the decision for you. What do you do with Jesus? Well, the world, you know, if I were to become a Christian, they'd laugh at me. They'll laugh you into hell. Well, you know, they wouldn't understand. Yeah, you're letting them make your decision for you. Stand on your own two feet. Stand up and say, listen, I know what's right and I don't care if anybody likes it out there where I work or out in the job. I'm going to make my decision for Jesus Christ. I'm going to live for him and walk with him and obey his word. The need for a military commander, give us one. Look in chapter 12, just a second at verse 12. Here's an interesting statement. He said in verse number, uh, chapter 12, verse number 12, the Lord's talking to him now, and when he said, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, you said unto me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. We want us a king like these other folks. We got the enemy coming against us. We're gonna have, listen, we're gonna have to have a change of government. Again, notice the fourth reason in verse 5. Verse 5 back in our chapter. And they came, the elders of Israel, to Samuel, and they said, And behold, thou art old. They said, Samuel, you're too old. You can't, uh, you brought us through a lot, but you're too old now. Isn't it a sad thing when a man looks at a fellow of age and says, Well, he just doesn't know what's going on. I got news for you. He probably knows more about what's going on than what he's forgotten is more than most of us will ever know. A man is a fool who fails to listen to the wisdom that comes through years. Young people, listen to it. You may not understand all the old folks say and do and why they do it. But I'm going to tell you something. No man has ever lived and walked for years on this earth and not learned something of value. You owe it to yourself to listen to your grandfather, your grandmother, your mother, your dad. They've been down the trail. They've already been over some of those rough spots. And now here's old Samuel. He's old. Sure he's old. He can't do the physical things he used to do, but boy, he's still got a head full of sense. He's still walking with God. Now they say, well, you just, oh, you know, you, we've taken the best of your years, and now you're too old, so we're going to turn you out to pasture like an old mule, just let you make it the best way you can, just graze around, get out on the side of the road, graze. I've seen it happen many a place. I've seen many an old preacher give his life and then when he gets too old the church said well we just can't use you anymore and they turn him out and let him live on welfare. I believe you'll answer to God for that. 
I believe he'll answer to God for that. And yet, Samuel, you're too old. So they said that created the problem. We need a king who can judge us, who can fight our battles, who can do all the work for us, make all of our decisions. We need that. Finally, let me close with this. Verse 7, God's permission. Now the Lord said, Samuel, what they're doing is wrong. The choice they're making is contrary. Poor old Samuel had his feelings hurt, and they said, Lord, they rejected me. And the Lord said, oh, no, they haven't. It's not you they're rejecting. They've rejected me. They've turned their backs on me. And Samuel, go ahead. Help them find a key. I'm going to let them have their own way in this matter. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. There is a point in a man's life at which God says, you are determined to do your own thing, and I'm going to let you do it. It's going to destroy you. It's going to break you. It's going to scar you. It's going to damage you. I've told you my will. Plainly, I've given it. But you go ahead. You've made your choice. But remember, there's a consequence that follows a wrong choice. God honors the choice of men. He'll honor your choice relative to the Savior. If you choose to leave Jesus Christ out of your life, God's not going to knock you in the head of the ball bat or hit you with a bolt of lightning and make you trust Jesus Christ. If you make your choice for hell rather than heaven, God will grant you that choice. But oh, the folly of such a choice. Think of spending an eternity in hell. I'm not talking about just for a few minutes. I'm not talking about for a lifetime. I'm talking about for eternity. I'm not talking about 60 years or 70 or 80 years. I'm talking about forever and ever and ever and ever. And yet many a man and woman will make a choice for the pleasure of sin today rather than to choose Jesus Christ. Again, God will let you have your choice when it comes to service. If you're saved, you're a child of God. Listen, God, if you say, hey, I'm just not going to serve God. I ain't got that kind of time. I ain't going to give my time to this business and the church and teaching Sunday school and helping work with the children or helping with the young people. Or, or the, I'm not going to. Listen, God will let you do that. But you're going to lose. No man has ever gained who chose to go contrary to God's will for his life. You'll never win. You'll always lose. There have been many a man then, not only that, but they've chosen contrary to God's will for not only salvation and service, but for sanctification in life. And I mean by that term, holiness in life. God will let you as his child make the choices to live worldly, carnal, fleshly. But the, way, the, the end of living according to the flesh is death, disaster, ruin. God granted Israel their permission. He, he gave them permission. It wasn't his perfect will, but he said, I'm going to let you go. You'll find if when you go home today, you read the rest of this chapter, the Lord tells them what's going to ha take place. And listen to this. After he tells them of the slavery, the servitude, the loss of freedom, the taxation, all of the confiscation the king would take from them, 
things of that were precious, their sons, their daughters. Do you know what Israel did after they were even told what was going to happen? They said, we want a king anyhow. We don't care. We don't care. We want a king. And many a man and woman today made a similar choice. I trust that this morning your choice will be a wise choice. If God's dealing you in your life about some specific sin, that you'll make the choice to confess that, to forsake it, to repent of it, to ask God to forgive you. And if you're here and you've never been saved, you'll make a choice today for Jesus Christ rather than against him. That if it's a choice as to whether or not you need to be in a Bible-believing church where you're, where you're taught the Word and believe the Word with God's people, if God's choice is this place for you, make it God's choice. God help us. Though we may want to change, that we'll make the right choice. But God can change things in His own time, in His own way. Let's pray together.